Okay, well, so are you ready to start? Uh, wait. Yeah, okay. So, today I'm going to share some conversations I had with some existing and old members of the Valras Parito Center in Lausanne. I'm Maria Back, and I'm currently a postdoc at the center. These are raw conversations from researchers in the history of economics and political science that may help you feel less alone and might just help you figure some things out. Who knows? Before I let you listen to these brilliant researchers, I want to thank them for trusting me, for opening up to me all while being recorded. I think these conversations are important for the well-being of our field, for the diversity of our field, and for the future of our field. But not all of us are surrounded by historians of economics and political science on a regular basis, and may thus not have access to these kinds of conversations and the insights that come from them. So this episode is for them. The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. In this first part of these stories from the Valras Parito Center, we talk about the kinds of advice that they liked and disliked. I'd like us to start with you presenting yourself. That's all right. Uh, yes. Uh, so thank you for having me first. Um, so my name is Cleo Chasson-Rizaigouche, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Bologna in Italy. I work mainly on the history of labor um, economics, uh, um, but um, yeah, not only. Um, I'm an historian of economics, basically, so I'm interested in um, a lot of stuff. What is the best advice you've ever gotten? Um, I think it's to say no to things and to people. Um, and it came as an advice quite early in my career. But the implementation of the advice was um, quite long for me. <laughs> and I think it's something you don't do very much when you're young because you're very flattered to be asked things or you have pressure to say yes from, you know, supervisor or people you, you think are very important uh, to say yes to. Um, and I think it's something that I, um, yeah, it took a lot of time for me to say no to things which I think is important because then you uh, you have boundary with yourself and the work uh, you want to do. And also um, it means that you know what you want to do <laughs> um, in terms of uh, the time you need to do the things you want, uh, the priority you want to give to some uh, specific work over others. Um, and so that was um, a very good advice. And now I can't remember who gave me this advice. I think it was several people at different time, but it really, really took a long time to say no. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one who finds that difficult, but it's it's important to hear, right? And especially at the beginning, because that's when you don't, you might not even realize it yourself, right? Yeah, and and I guess it's also part of like, navigating um uh, the field like like um what is it exactly to say yes to an editorial work um how long does it take to do a review of an article 
um, how long do you need to actually finish the paper uh, and so give it the priority over, I don't know, another collective project that is interesting, um, uh, but not the priority for your career at a specific moment. Um, and so, yeah, because everything is potentially interesting. <laughs> so it's quite difficult, I think, to say um, no to things that look great, but you don't have the capacity right now to uh, to say um, yes. If you had one tip for us then about how to say no, or I guess how to decide to say no, I think maybe it's better. Do, would you have one? Um, I think what helped me a lot was to ask people. So not especially the person who asked the question uh, about the task to do, but like asking my um, fellow PhD student uh, when I was a PhD student, colleague that I trust saying, do you think I should say yes to that? Um, do you think I should say no? Um, and asking more than one person usually give you more than one answer. Uh, and, and then, but I think it's it's something uh, that was really helpful for me. I have uh, two or three colleagues that I really trust on those issues, who also have those issues, by the way, <laughs> of saying no, and were a lot solicited, like a lot um, asked to do stuff. And so, yeah, asking people. But I think this is an advice for sort of everything. Um, uh, I don't know in life, but in academia, certainly for me, uh, every time I had a question, I have asked uh, people, usually people that were close to me or senior that I trust. Um, and I didn't follow their advice all the time, but at least there is like, it's out there. I'm not alone with the decision. And most of the time they they have a very easy answer because they went through this, the same process. Um, and so, for example, I did that with review requests. I was saying yes to all the review requests, and it took me a long time to do this uh, because I think writing a report on a paper is extremely important. Uh, it's at the basis of our, I think, a profession for good and bad reason. Uh, I'm not sure the review process is the best way to to uh, publish and um, produce a quality work, but it's what it is. And so, yeah, I was saying yes to all the requests I have because like, oh, a new paper. Yay, it's interesting. They think I'm, I can, you know, contribute to, to this. Uh, but then I realized I can say I could say no, and so this happened. But because I asked people around me, and I, and some of them were like, "Oh no, but you can say no." I say no. Um, I don't know. They didn't give me a percentage, but they they were saying no much at a rate that was uh, really higher than me. Um, and so I I started to say no to the paper that I knew I couldn't do the job well, um, or that was a bit far away from my interest at the moment not in general but at the moment um so yeah ask ask people around so i am justine lulergue i am phd student in the very end of the phd <laughs> uh, at the centre valras pareto in lausanne and also at the centre d'économie de la sorbonne in parisien panthéon sorbonne I'm working on the group of uh, 19th century French economists and the way they used the word equilibre, which is equilibrium in French, to depoliticize a political economy. Okay, so should we just dive straight in? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. So, 
what is the best advice you have ever gotten? I think I would say two of them, because the first one would be to actually not stay um, between your, like, actually not stay only with your directors, no matter how well it goes, but also to send chapters, send stuff to as many people as possible, just for for getting feedbacks from very different perspectives. And I think that was very interesting for me to try that. And I was very surprised by the diversity of advices and, and point of views and, and suggestions I had. And also that creates contacts. I was going to say, it's like both for your own, getting more comments on what you're doing and making your work better and making improving yourself as a researcher, but, but also just you're reaching out to other people and meeting new people. Yeah, go, going further, um, also in your own interest uh, on your work, because you see the reaction of others, you see that maybe some aspects that you did not expect are interesting to various people. Mm. So that's, that's a good surprise, I think. And I think it's a very, very good thing to do, uh, especially when you're you're young researcher. Did you think, do you find that it gave you confidence too? Yeah, also, also confidence and uh, fun, I would mm-hmm. say. Fun, mm-hmm. because it creates a lot of bridges towards uh, other people's researches. So that's something you don't see for yourself when you're a young researcher. You've not presented that, presented that much mm-hmm. in conferences. So I guess that's an important step to, to, to make, just mm-hmm. to, to dare, because actually it's not that simple to reach people you don't necessarily know very well and say, okay, could you read a chapter of mine? It's not finished. It's not perfect far from it and uh, of course it will never be but I mean it's it's just a draft mm-hmm. can you read my draft you you the person I don't know <laughs> I mean it's a bit scary so I think that yeah you're putting yourself advice. out there you're being vulnerable yeah you are mm-hmm. you are and at the same time seeing uh, again as a young researcher that your vulnerability is okay mm-hmm. uh, I think it's important to to realize that so that was very good advice. And I think the second one is partly uh, an advice and partly a discovery for myself. <laughs> um, was, it was to, 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 to write every day. Uh, I write 10 minutes per day, a little bit longer than usual writing groups uh, writing. Mm-hmm. But writing by hand, doing your, do you, doing your own stuff makes it more personal in a way. I don't know, when I start my day, I don't start with emails. I don't start with uh, something written by someone else, but by my own uh, relationship with my own work. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important and, and really, yeah, it gave me a lot to do that, I think. So, and that writing, you said you did it with pen, on paper, um, yeah. and it was all, it's always about your research, what you write? More or less. 
Um, that's Link not a constraint I put on myself, but it ends being always on my research or more or less it can be on on the things I'm gonna have to do today uh, including other um, sometimes teaching or stuff like that what should I think about and and all but I think it's really good in any case no matter what you're writing about to actually um, develop it from the first person perspective mm -hmm. like what what why why am i scared about writing this um what's what's the what blocks me here mm -hmm. what stops me from from going further in this teaching okay maybe some uh, an argument is missing what is the argument okay was why is it missing why is it not enough mm -hmm. yeah so writing all these steps was uh, I think it's really useful. Yeah, and I like your your description of it being about you. You don't start from somewhere else, someone else, um, and it must be an empowering act in a way. Yeah, it is. It is also because you realize that you built something from a day to another. <laughs> in a way, even even if you don't write exactly about the same same thing, and you don't reread yourself you you can notice that there is a progression in in any case and that's something you would not see just without writing i mean mm. ju just like that you would not realize that there is this progress or this change this evolving thinking thought this evolving, yeah, evolving uh, thoughts or thoughts yeah this how your thinking evolves yeah yeah, and you're seeing it then on a more regular basis because you're seeing it every day. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, someone else might see their progress from one conference to the next, which can be a year apart. But you're seeing it on an everyday basis here because you're going back to it. Yeah, yeah and, and also you, 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 you write down your doubts and then you write down the answers to your doubts. And that's something, even without noticing that you've actually done that but if you go back to a few pages before then you realize that actually this was a subject of doubt a topic of doubt and uh, and, and that you've actually solved it and this is something you don't see mm -hmm. normally especially like in conference from conference to another no. you just see the final product you yeah. don't see the the process mm -hmm. of it so yeah, yeah, I think that's that's fascinating, and something very easy that everyone can do. Yeah, that's that's nothing to do. I mean, ten minutes. What is it? So you 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 put your timer on, and then yeah. ten minutes, mm. just the start of the day, and mm. and after that you're not in your non-academic thinking. Mm. You're straight on in your work. First thing I'm going to ask you to do is just to say your name, your position, and where you're working. So, my name is Maria Gutierrez. I'm a second year PhD student in uh, History of Economic Thought uh, in Valraspareto Center. My advisor is Haramas. My research is about a specific methodology that is called uh, Lab in the Field Experiments 
and I'm interested in um, the loving the field experiments or more maybe it's more precise to say loving the field experimentalists uh, that are from Colombia or uh, that work in Colombia because I I learned that Colombia has a, an important role um, in this in the history of this specific methodology. So we're going to talk a little bit about your um, career so far as an historian of economics today. Um, and I have these five questions for you. So we'll just go through them one by one. The first one is, the what is the best advice that you've ever gotten? Okay. Um, this is a difficult question <laughs> for me because I thought first about like the best advice regarding my my research and then I think no maybe it's better to think about like an advice more general about the the work or the the career or the specificities of, uh, of the of the this type of work that is quite different from from a normal job so I remember when I just arrived at the center and someone said to me I was like a little bit lost uh, I, I didn't know uh, um, what what uh, what to do first so this person said to me something um, that similar to enjoy this moment because it's like a unique uh, moment where you can read whatever you want and you get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've all heard some kind of version of that. Yeah. So I thought and um, I still think that it's um, a good advice because it makes me uh, realize realize how um, that it's really a huge privilege to have this freedom uh, to choose your um, my topic, my research topic, but also I I realized like. Um, um, that I have also this freedom to choose methods, um, literature, uh, I'm starting um, the interviews with, uh, with some of the economists I'm interested in. So I have also the, the freedom to choose which ones I want to, to interview f uh, first or most in general, which ones. Uh, I I want to 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 have as as interviews. So, I think this 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 one was a good advice for me. And it's quite a positive. You you you. Yeah, you you understood quite quickly maybe what's positive about the field too. My name is uh, Tatiana Fukone. I'm currently a PhD student in political science at the Institute of uh, Political Studies in Lausanne. I'm currently working on the question of the political representation of the working class in 1848 in France. I'm not an economist, but my field of study obviously brings me into contact with economists of the first half of the 19th century 
who were interested in the social question. Yeah, probably the best advice I got was not from the academic world, but from my family upbringing, and that is to always do what you are passionate about, what makes you grow. And I became interested in the history of the worker movement when I was a teenager because I was interested in all those people, in their courage, in their struggles, in their dignity. Even if I have distanced myself from this early emotion, uh, my interest in the environment of my object of study helps me to overcome um, the difficulties of the thesis exercise. I don't think I could have done a thesis on a subject I didn't like, but on the other hand, I sometimes feel embarrassed to be funded to work on a subject I was passionate about. My name is Bianca Maria Fontana. I'm Emeritus Professor of the University of Lausanne. I'm a historian and I've been teaching history of political thought. The best advice I ever got in my career, I got in Cambridge from my very eccentric tutor who told me always to do what I felt like doing, which meant at that stage ignoring fashion, current trends and also considerations of career. Um, so, you know, the idea is basically to pursue whatever um, you thought best of doing. Of course, it is extremely difficult not to be conditioned by your environment in intellectual choices as well as everything else. But that was basically the line. And in the very long run, at the time I was a student, well, a research student, um, I really felt that it was right. And and so you'd say you you're talking about some kind of following of gut instinct or or wishes and um, desires. I suppose yeah. the, the the real point is intellectual interest and an inclination. Um, I I suppose th this is probably a generational thing. Uh, in my generation, I mean people who came out of the university in the seventies. Uh, the 1970s, um, probably better specify rather than in some other century, but anyway, it's a different century. Uh, there was very much a consideration of relevance. Um, that is to say, you know, you had to do something that in a context of political struggle, confrontation and so on, uh, would be important as opposed to forms of cultural interest that might be just antiquarian or frivolous or mm. uh, useless, I suppose. And of course, it, it's not a very good criterion, I think, in retrospect, because everything can be relevant or not. Uh, but at the time, it, had, it gave a certain weight. Uh, though I suppose there was less the pressure of fitting into academic moulds and categories than there is now uh, for young researchers. Right, so there's on one hand um, more pressures to do something what they labelled at the time relevant, but then on the other hand fields weren't no, as... Not what they labelled, but what we felt. Um, so, you know, the critique of political economy was relevant 
uh, why maybe studying, I don't know, medieval economic history was not, which mm. I repeat is, is absolutely false because you can, uh, as a historian, you can ask relevant and interesting questions about anything and you can do completely frivolous, useless work about very important subjects. So, you mm. know, it's not, it's not a very good uh, mm. Uh, discriminating so so on the one hand you think that made you follow um more more religiously or more strongly the things that you really wanted to study but also you mentioned career-wise was there a decision you made career-wise that was well uh, less strategic the the decision i made was when i i i first graduated in italy at a time when the, the italian university um was very much in disarray after 68 because the entire system had been dismantled uh, and a new one had not yet been built so that it was simply impossible to apply Italy as a national system like France. And at that stage, it was impossible to apply for jobs or qualify or do anything because the whole system had come to a standstill. And I suppose that the choice was not to cling to the different parishes, if I can say so, parishes being political and, and intellectual, that dominated the Italian academy. And, and this, in a way, comes to the question of what bad advice did I get? And the bad advice was to try to persuade me to go back to Italy and try to fit into one of these parishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I was interested probably more in the history of economic thought. And then, yeah, I realized that, you know, I, I rather moved into political history. Uh, but in any case, whatever choice I had made, there was a very uh, uh, rigid and very formal division of labor amongst the different academic competitions, and especially in the system of patronage you had to fit in. And so in a way, the the... The, there was on my part a rejection of that mm-hmm. and and Cambridge did help that because there was a very strong sense at the time of intellectual independence um, and so you know one disregarded the possi- but that meant basically giving up the possibility of a return to 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 Italy because once you were out you were out and uh, so in that sense, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the, your worst and best advice are opposites. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. In in a sense, yes. Yeah. I think uh, I think so quite clearly. Then, of course, much of what happens in one's academic career is a matter of sheer luck. Uh, by luck, meaning accident, circumstances, and so you know. I I don't know whether there are people who can actually plan very. Uh, firmly and confidently their future promotion. And uh, for example, the reason why I ended up in Switzerland um, getting a professorial chair when I was under 40, so relatively early, was completely accidental and was due to the fact that I had studied and worked on the Swiss 18th century writer, Benjamin Constant, never imagining that this would lead me to his birthplace 
uh, Lausanne, which actually was a place he detested and he never lived as far as he could. Um, so, you know, that this is an unforeseen circumstance. Um, but you did that because you followed the advice of that? Of that yeah, friend. because yeah. I followed, in a way, uh, I mean, the price to pay, of course, is that your what you do looks somewhat inconsistent because I started working on my, my doctoral dissertation in, in Cambridge was about essentially the relation between the tradition of political economy and Whig politics in the 19th century. So my thesis was on the Edinburgh Review, which was the uh, major Whig organ uh, from, you know, in the, the first part of the 19th century. Um, from there, I discovered that there was a link between English liberals, um, if we can call the Whigs liberals, I suppose they, they were liberals, and some European intellectuals like Benjamin Constant. So that led me into an entirely different world. Um, and so, you know, uh, I suppose that a more uh, rentable, organized system would have been to keep working on the same subject which I've always found a bit tedious to do in the long run. Yeah, the worst advice comes from the academic world, sorry. And once after a conference, I was told that I had to be more arrogant in my demonstration if I wanted to exist in the academy. And arrogant means displaying intellectual ambition, being more assertive in my explanatory merits, And frankly, I personally have trouble with the scientific arrogance that violently imposes its way of seeing the world. I believe that political science, like other social sciences, is first and foremost an instrument of emancipation and not of domination. Political science cannot therefore be arrogant. Okay, so second question, what is the worst advice? that you've ever gotten <laughs> I mean according um, to you um, obviously it could be good advice yeah, to someone yeah. else hmm. um that actually a good uh, nuance to add um so in terms of um I don't know I had many terrible <laughs> advice I think um the first I can think of is um about uh, research, actually. I was presenting a paper on uh, Friedman, and I think it's a difficult author to write on because um, because it's Milton Friedman first, um, and because there is many literature and many uh, opinion uh, about uh, Friedman. And I was trying to present like a sort of picture that was... Uh, I don't know, thick, complex, um, and I was putting all the fact on the table, uh, which is um, usually what I start with. And a discussant told me, just, just don't, don't, yeah, leave the politics. Don't analyze the political consequences of what he's saying. Just, just go on the analytic, you know, of the theory. Don't, don't go into the politics. I, I don't really uh, had. I forgot all the advice that I didn't follow in a way. 
so but I I surely I I yeah I think I I disliked part of the advice I've got which was about um speaking there is this idea for uh, when you do a presentation uh in public you have to be extremely sure of yourself you know you have to reach out to to speak loud to take a lot of space to be present uh, so i agree that you have to take space but i always uh i think give presentation that are um a bit unfinished, a bit open, a bit in the air, a bit work in progress, because this is how I think I usually use presentation as uh, a way for me to organize my ideas and to get some feedback. So I don't do exactly, um, you know, I, I did that, but I don't think it's my favorite delivering a final product. Like, you know, I wrote that, take it. You could ask me question about it, but it's for you to learn. Um, I usually do presentation, I think, that are very open. And so it can be a bit messy because I end up having, you know, question and I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. So <laughs> so I will, you know, find out. Thank you for the question. And I got a lot of advice, which was about uh, don't do that. Um, uh, a lot of advice about confidence. I think a lot of advice people give to young women um, which basically can be summed up by be more like a young, confident man. And actually, uh, I don't want to be like uh, a young, confident man uh, who uh, very uh, straightforwardly tell you the truth about what they think is the truth. And I think it, it took me a bit of time to see that this was my style of presenting and that could I could also be confident uh, in that uh, way of presenting things but that I liked more open uh, uh, presentation. Um, yeah. So for example, that have been this idea that you have to, to speak up, uh, you have to be, uh, you know, taking all the space uh, always make me a bit uncomfortable because I'd like others to take less space actually uh, so that everyone can have the space they want. Um, and uh, yeah. So that that's the sort of um, advice I, I disliked um, in the past. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point there. Again, it's quite linked to the first point you're making. There are different ways of doing things and it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have to find your... Yeah, what, what you do best. Because I think if you do what you feel is comfortable, then you do that better. And then people will... Um, uh, get the message more or understand you better and yeah thanks yeah. yeah I agree and I think the thing that made me uncomfortable was like like you should do that and there is just one way to do that I would say that it's um, it's terrible that in academy people often say you should work all the time all day long and at for for several weeks sometimes just barely eat and just do your stuff and wake up and start from the very very beginning from the breakfast basically uh, don't don't take time for yourself don't take time for anything else i think this is terrible okay so the second question then is what is the worst advice you've ever gotten okay 
I think maybe this is not like a specific advice, but some like um, idea or comment that I that I heard um, several times. Maybe not from people um, that are in the same uh, uh, field in the history of economic thought, but maybe from uh, other friends that are also doing a PhD, but in other disciplines. And this advice or this idea is that you must um, concentrate all your energies in the PhD and you you have to to live uh, like in a second place all the other things of your life like family friends sport hobbies so i think this is a this was a bad advice because for me it might generate this pressure and this um this pressure uh, might also block ourselves so it's it's quite uh, tricky toxic yes toxic very toxic yeah and you're not the first to give that advice the to to say that as the worst advice yeah okay yeah and you often hear that pressure at the beginning of a phd right because people want to tell you about what it's like doing a PhD, what the field is like, and, and that often comes up, isn't it? Yes, I think I discussed uh, about it with a, with a friend that is also doing a PhD in, in our field. And he said to me, this is not um, logic. This is not uh, reasonable because when you read uh, talking just about like the um, intellectual part, you need also some other um, um, stimulus mm-hmm. from uh, from uh, maybe other um, topics of your own f- research field, or also uh, from other disciplines, uh, from uh, from neighbor neighbor disciplines. Uh, so to think that um, you just have the right to read about your research agenda or um, about your field it's also not the most um, strategic way of thinking because you need to have other other point perspective to also be creative in your own research i think yeah, because without creativity, you're not coming up with new ideas, yeah. And and honestly, if you look at, like, people who actually study the human capacity, right, the way we work best, and the, we, we can't possibly be productive all day long. We can't possibly be... Um, like, like we, we get inspiration from so many different things, and, 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 and we need breaks in order to get that inspiration and, and get well have the energy to do what we do um and yeah and i mean creativity is produced by putting different things together that nobody else has put together before so yeah again you need to do different kinds of things in your life in order to finish your phd yeah. Thanks.
Yeah. I'd love to be a part of changing that ideal. And I, I, I personally try to do it by making clear to people I don't work on the weekends. I don't know that I have, that I do sports, that I do have my evenings and yeah. Yes. Because I, I think modeling what you want, I think is, if, if you have the privilege to do that, right? I mean, some people have more precarity in their, in their work stability. Um, but if you have the ability to, to, to have that work-life balance, then you should tell others that you're doing it to legitimize it, right? Yes, and it's quite uh, nice to see that other people from this center are doing this, this kind of, of activities, like mm -hmm. to do together something else. Also to take time to to have uh, uh, these spaces of of uh, sociability within the center, or just to do other activities, send the message of uh, of this um, necessity of of uh, having an equilibrium between your time of work, like uh, to read, to write, to to be in a seminar and other types of uh, of relations um with with your colleagues but also uh, other aspects of your life to to also um cultivate this these other areas of your of your own life mm. so that's very nice mm. yeah i'm glad you think so <laughs> Thank you again to Cleo, Bianca, Tatiana, Maria and Justine. I hope you learned as much as I did from their answers. I will try to say no more. I will try to write more often. I should read more. And I should feel more legitimate in following what I'm passionate about. I also hope you find solace in their answers as much as I did. There are struggles that many of us face and a part of overcoming them comes from sharing with others. More profoundly, however, I think it shows that more diversity is possible and welcome. We will be back soon with a second episode with Cleo, Bianca, Tatiana, Maria and Justine talking about what they like and dislike about their work and about any regrets they may have had about their choices or trajectories. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website cetrusneverparabus.net for more information. Follow us on Twitter cetrusnparabus and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.